as we uh, turn now to our scripture reading, uh, I'm going to read essentially the whole chapter of 1 Timothy chapter 1. And, uh, and just because it's easier to go over the whole thing, I'll be touching on a lot of things that are there. And so here is 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make such confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immortal, immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's say this together, that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Now again, as we jump back into this passage, this book uh, is written, it's a letter written from the Apostle Paul, one of the more famous figures in Christianity, uh, from the Apostle Paul to his disciple Timothy. Timothy may have even been led to faith in Christ by the Apostle Paul. Uh, the Apostle Paul started the church that Timothy is now the pastor of, the church in Ephesus. Paul started this church and then uh, set Timothy in charge of it as he went on to go start other churches. That's a lot of what Paul did. And as he, uh, and it's very possible as well that Paul is writing this to Timothy um, from a prison cell. And so these are the things that Paul cares about the most. And so he is telling Paul, Paul is telling Timothy rather, all kinds of things about how to organize and, send, and uh, what, organize the church and how it should be centered, around which what it should be centered. 
uh, he feels it's important for Timothy to cultivate this, this gospel-centered culture, a community centered around truth. And that Timothy should be diligent to keep other opposing teachings away. And it's because those teachings aren't just distracting, but, but because of the nature of the gospel, that, that the gospel is like supposed to be the biggest truth. Jesus is supposed to be our biggest love. And so any teaching that distracts from that actually cuts at the gospel. Uh, and so, uh, you know, Paul's saying, look, be really careful how you do this. Uh, Paul is kind of between the lines we see that Paul's saying that we as people naturally center ourselves around truth. We naturally shape our lives based on truth. Uh, we, we may not realize it. Uh, we may not be aware of those things very much. But uh, that's why when you hear something new, a truth that you weren't expecting to be true, it can be sh- so uh, difficult to take in because there are truths, things that we know to be true that we already live by and may not even realize it. But Paul's saying, look, the gospel is a truth that transforms everything about your life. And it's a good truth. And it's, it's a wonderful transformation that takes place. Uh, but it's all the more important to protect that and build a community off that. So, uh, now, in this, it's, it's a kind of truth uh, you know, that's centered around Jesus Christ. Paul, a number of times, mentions his name. Mentions Jesus, the fact that he is Christ or Messiah or Savior. And as we look at Jesus in his life, I mentioned this at the beginning, as, as you, if you flip through the pages of any gospel and just, and just kind of see what, what did Jesus do? What kinds of things did he talk about? Who did he interact with? Who, who did he fight with? Who is he kind with, right? And you find that Jesus loved to spend time with sinners. He loved to spend time with the outcast. He loved to spend time with those who were broken, with those who were sick. He loved them. He didn't, he did also spend time with people who were like really, really religious and really, really considered themselves really good. But most of the time when he interacted with them, he had some words for them that, that helped, try to help them know that they weren't as awesome as they thought they were. <laughs> and, and so he, he wanted to lift up the broken and help those who, who felt that they were pretty good to have profound humility. And this is one way, a huge way that Jesus just made life beautiful and people beautiful around him. But loving sinners, loving broken, loving outcasts, this is how the church is supposed to live and love. This is what the core of what Paul is telling to Timothy. That this truth about Jesus, the truth about the gospel, that these things, how Jesus lived in loving sinners and spending time with sinners, in accepting the outcast, in, in trying to mend the broken, that this, these are the truths that we center ourselves around as a church. And so as we look at this, uh, there's this great quote by Martin Luther. Uh, he's an old dead theologian uh, from Germany. A guy who was a monk that uh, started reading the scriptures uh, like in depth and at length. And he found that there were things in here that disagreed with what his superiors at the time were, were telling him was true. And, and a, a whole reformation came out of that. Uh, he was far from perfect, but he also knew where his perfection came from, that it was from Jesus himself. But he had this great thing that he said, um, he, uh, Martin Luther did, and he said, said this, that the word of God, that the Bible 
that the Bible has, uh, uh, where to go here? Uh, the Bible speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. And I'll, I'll repeat that another couple times later on. And I want to look, I think that's a really good lens through which we can see this passage, that we're going to see how Jesus leads his church, Jesus is the center of his church, through the scripture, as the scripture speaks to us, the scripture runs after us and lays hold of us. That it speaks to us, runs after us, lays hold of us. So first, Jesus, through the scripture, speaks to me, speaks to me. Scripture teaches us primarily who God is and what we're supposed to, how we're supposed to live, right? That's the core of Scripture. That's how you summarize it, I guess. Who is God and how are we supposed to live? The Bible digs into that. And within that, probably the, the most central message the Bible gives us from God is I love you and my grace is more than you need. And you're in a bigger need of my grace than you might imagine. And I need to hear that every day, right? That, that the God would say, I love you. Uh, my grace is all that you need. But you're in a bigger need of my grace than you might imagine. And, and that's, how, that's, what, that's what growth in the Christian life looks like. Uh, to grow in those awareness of those things. And these are things the false teachers are missing. And so Paul takes a moment to talk about these false teachers. Uh, because their, their teaching is, like it seems really harmless uh, maybe uh, it might it might be, go to an extreme, and in other cases, be you know more obviously harmful. Uh, but there's also a sense of subtlety, and these false teachers are, are are moving away from these core truths that 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 God loves us, His grace is more than enough for us, but we also need His grace more than we may imagine. And, and they swerve away into other things, and other things that are, that are peripheral, and they seem wonderful. Um, whether it be talking about, you know, hey, when, when is the world going to end? Or, or what is the perfect way? Uh, there are a hundred different ways that we can go aside outside of Scripture and make it the main thing. What is the only best Christian way to raise your children, to school your children? What is the best Christian policy on uh, the ounces of alcohol you can have without uh, losing your Christianity. Like what? I mean, there are all kinds of little discussions we can have. Uh, how how nice of a home can you have, right? Or how uh, how should how should you make this decision on vacation time, or or on this, or should you be involved in in this uh, in this other in your neighbor's life? Your neighbor is inviting you. Uh, you know, should you to be involved in their life? Should you should you steer clear of it? Should you jump into it? There are all kinds of things that, that can become, uh, become central that aren't central, but as we focus on what is central, everything peripheral begins to make more sense. But when we focus on what is peripheral, we lose sight on what is central. Now, the Bible is a guide, but if you actually read it and allow it to guide you, you're going to find, find that it reveals things in your life and in your heart that need to change. That makes sense, right? The Bible's a guide. You want to look to it to know how to better live, but it only makes sense that as you really look into it, that it's going to show you areas in your life that need to change. And the apostle talks about these false teachers and talks about how they, they swerve from this, what's central. And then he says this, We know uh, that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. 
Okay, so how are we supposed to use God's word? Uh, at this point, by the way, the law is the Bible. Uh, the New Testament part of the Bible that we know is still being written. Uh, it hasn't been like printed in a book altogether like we have. And so when they talk about the law, they're talking about all the message of, of God that he has given to his people thus far. And so we're talking about really the Old Testament, but it's the Bible at this point. But how do you use this correctly? Understanding this, he says, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and sinners. And then Paul brackets that at the end, a few verses later, by making this point. And I think he makes it for a reason. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, of whom I am the worst. He says, but I received mercy uh, that Jesus might display his patience in me, right? As an example, like if, if Paul can be saved uh, that bad of a sinner, then anyone can. And so what we see, Paul is telling Timothy that if we use the Bible correctly, you'll hear it speaking to you, the core truth, that again, I love you and my grace is more than enough for you, but you need my grace more than you realize. The Bible will expose areas in our lives that need to change It'll expose our sin and what we need to be forgiven of. The Bible actually has no power to change our behavior, but it can tell us how to live and show us how we're falling short in that. Just like a map, like even a map, if you're looking at the Bible just as a guide, maybe you think, hey, the Bible really shouldn't uh, change my life, but I might look at it as a guide every now and then. Well, let's say I'm lost in the woods and I pull out a map, uh, and I don't have a compass or anything, I just have the map. And if I have that map, that isn't actually going to get me to where I want to go, is it? It might show me where I am, and if I have a compass, I can figure out where I am on the map, but it's not going to transport me to where I'm, I want to go. It's just going to show me that I'm not where I want to be, right? So same with the Bible. It exposes our uh, our, our sin. You open a box of instru- you open some kind of new toy, uh, anything that involves assembly, any kind of, I don't know, let's say you bought a grill recently and it did not come assembled, and you have to put all that together. Uh, the instructions won't assemble it for you. It'll show you how it should be assembled, uh, but if you haven't done it before, you might just look at all the pieces and think, how in the world is this going to come together? Uh, I think you skipped a couple steps in there somewhere, right? And the same with the Bible. It, it just, it's so helpful, though. It shows us how we need to change. So it'll drive us in doing this closer to Jesus and show us our need for the Savior and also show us the Savior himself and show us that Jesus is more than we need. He is all that we need. So then Paul, in that framework of, of humility, that framework of, of understanding where he stands, then digs into this list. And this list that is in, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses uh, like 9 through, uh, through 10, that essentially what he's doing is he's breaking down the Ten Commandments. 
If you take a look at this passage, each of these things he mentions corresponds with a commandment. He's actually going in order. He groups them together a little bit. But for example, he talks about the unholy and profane. And that really covers the first four commandments. Like, that you shall have no gods before me. You shall not make an image of, of God or anything else like that. You should not take my name in vain. You should keep the Sabbath holy. Uh, those commandments, uh, to violate those as a block, is to be unholy and profane. To violate any of those, right? Uh, to those who strike their fathers and mothers. That is the opposite of honoring your father and mother. And of course, it's not just those who strike their fathers and mothers. That might seem odd. You're like, I've never struck my father or mother. Uh, but it's the idea behind, uh, the heart behind it, of not honoring your parents, right? Then uh, this, the, for murderers, right? You shall not murder. Uh, 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 was that six? The sixth commandment. Uh, for the sexually immoral, uh, men who practice homosexuality. Uh, and uh, you shall not commit adultery is the command there. And I'll come back to that one in a few minutes here. To enslavers, you shall not steal. What's the worst thing you could steal? Another person. Uh, number uh, number nine, liars and perjurers, you shall not lie. And I think you can tuck, tie in, you shall not covet there somewhere. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So he's just going through the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are kind of a summary of how God wants us to live uh, and, and it's the heart behind all of it that Jesus wants us to understand, right? Because Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, brings all of these commandments to the heart level. Remember he said that? Remember Jesus would say, hey, hey, you've heard it said, don't kill, don't murder. And all of you in the audience are thinking, well, pfft, I'm good on that because I've never killed anybody. Uh, but, but Jesus says, hey, I say to you, that if you're even angry at your brother or sister, that it's the same thing in your heart as murder. He brings these commands to the heart level so that as we, all of us in this room, anyone who reads this, looks at this list, we're not meant to do, like it seems like the opposite is what we're prone to do, is say, oh, look at all those bad people that I'm not. But what we're supposed to do is look into this, ask Jesus to check our heart, and we'll see that we violate a lot of these on a given day in our hearts. Uh, and, uh, you know, w- with enslaving, uh, we, you probably have not taken someone as a slave, and yet we can so easily uh, manipulate relationships, manipulate people so that they owe us back, so that they, uh, so that, w- you know, we might do something so that they'll owe us a favor in return. How different is that? So, This may seem like a list of shame, but Paul himself calls himself the chief of sinners. And he says he was certainly so bad, but he uses the word I am. I am the chief of sinners. The Greek word is I am. The other times this word is used in Scripture is when God describes himself as I am, which for God means that I am as I am. I am continually existent. I will always exist in this way. And and Paul is saying, this is how I am now that I am this bad. And I need a Savior. And I'm so grateful that there is one. Now you look at the woman at the well in Matthew, I'm sorry, in John chapter 5. There's this woman who has so many longings. I'm going to take a second just to, to think about her because uh, in Matthew 4, I'm sorry, John 4, I'm all over the place, John 4, that this woman inter- bumps into Jesus. Jesus is seeking after her, actually. He kind of intentionally, accidentally bumps into her because he, he wants to have this conversation with her. 
because she is thirsty for so many things. She's longing for love. She's longing for acceptance. She's longing for dignity. She's longing for, uh, for, for all kinds of things. And Jesus is saying, look, I am the answer. I am what you want and what you long for in this. And as we look at Scripture, it should show us that we're longing for things that the world is just not going to give us. And it, as we read Scripture, it'll point us to the living water, to Jesus who can satisfy us. So let me go back to that passage that I can't possibly, that line that I I couldn't possibly completely ignore, uh, for men who practice homosexuality, because I know this is a a really controversial thing, and this is probably, for a lot of reasons, a lot of pastors just don't want to talk about this at all. Um, But there's a lot of nuance regarding the mention uh, of this, uh, so I don't have a chance, I I can't go into it as thoroughly as I want to today. but, but first, I think we have a few things to, to understand. One, we have a long way to go in understanding this. Two, the best way to grow in understanding this is to be in friendship with someone who identifies as gay or who experience, experiences same-sex attraction. To be able to have the Bible in one hand and have a, have a friend in your life. Uh, to be able to understand, and one of the things you'll pick up is that people don't have as much control over whom they're attracted to. Hold on, put a bookmark there. We don't have as much control over whom we're attracted to. Uh, and, and that makes a difference when you understand that. Uh, we understand the brokenness of the world has left no sphere of life untouched. And that includes uh, our sexuality. And, you know, we can find examples all throughout history of those uh, who practice homosexuality. There's been a recent phenomenon in, in our world, in our society, where it's been brought to the forefront as a core human value issue, a matter of identity. This is relatively new, that this would be something that we find our identity in. And it's hard to find a connection with that, uh, except if, like, I just was always thinking about how I, I love steak or something like that. I, I love, I love, uh, uh, a pot roaster. I don't know what it is, but like I love beef, right? But I'm not gonna. I, it's, that's not the core of who I am. But the world is is kind of twisting things so that we're finding our identity in all kinds of things where we shouldn't find our identity. But the Bible is clear that every person has dignity in the eyes of God. We have to treat everyone accordingly. Scripture also says that. That, that sex is to be in the context of marriage, and that, uh, and only in that context. And that marriage is taught by Scripture as, as something between a man and a woman, that this is how Scripture teaches it, that's how, because that's how we're designed. And if we try to compare that to, like if we have that in mind and then have another discussion uh, on the side about how... Uh, about whether someone's accepted for how they feel attracted to so-and-so, it's almost two different conversations uh, because sexuality and marriage, it's designed to be in a certain way. But we find our identity and our dignity outside of that. Our identity and dignity is, in, is found in being made in God's image. Now, there are many who will criticize any interpretation of this passage than then uh, that doesn't reverse the teaching here, essentially. Uh, you know, there are many who will say, hey, unless, you're, unless you think that what this is saying is completely wrong, 
then, uh, then you're filled with hate, and, and that's not true at all. Jesus himself was able to fulfill the law and had no ounce of evil hatred in him. The Bible fully validates every human being is worthy of love, but it doesn't validate every way we seek love. It also says there is no love that satisfies like God's love. If you're counting seven, the church is pro-people. The church is not against any community of people. Uh, nor ought the church be uh, against anyone. We are for people. All right? But we're also for Scripture and for God's vision for their lives and for their ultimate satisfaction in Christ. I don't know if Jesus ever sat down with a gay person, but... Uh, or someone who is struggling with their gender, gender identity or someone with same-sex attraction. But his biggest concern would have been their heart for God. It would have been them. It would have been, it would have been their longings. It would have been, he would have cared about where their heart was, and he would have wanted them uh, to know that everything they're longing for can only be met in him. And he wanted them to see that they were sinners, like the Apostle Paul, in need of grace. He would want to lead them to repent of the sin that, that we all have, to put lesser loves aside for the great lover of their souls, Jesus. Uh, and there are, you know, there are, it's, I mean, there are so many people in the church, so many people who believe in Jesus, who, who struggle with same-sex attraction or with gender issues. This is a very much a church Thing. These are a part of, of our communities as churches. And, and this is, uh, is, is not a political stance. It's not a place where we can so easily, you know, politics tends to divide and militarize. And the gospel says we move forward with love and show people how they can be fulfilled through Christ. And if you want to read more on this, uh, Sam Albury is, uh, I mean, there are a number of books on it, but he, he's a, a gay, celibate Christian and author, and he has a fantastic book I'd commend called Is God Anti-Gay? Uh, if you'd like to read a short book, it's a very short book on that, you can check that out. So again, I think Paul is very intentional and in to quickly draw our attention away from thinking, oh, all those other people out there, but thinking, oh, this list applies to me, right? And that Jesus is so such a great Savior. Jesus, it is true to say, Jesus loves sinners only because sinners are the only people there are in the world. How true is that? Jesus loves sinners only because Jesus, because sinners, I'm sorry, are the only people there are in the world. So, it ought to be true that we would say, I am a much better example of someone who needs forgiveness than of someone who shows it. Uh, I'm a better example of someone who needs more love and grace than of someone who is a really good example of someone who shows it. Um, and yet as we experience his forgiveness and love and grace, it does, it, the intention is to flow out of us. So we're looking at how scripture speaks to us. Yes, it shows us our need for him and his sufficiency in our need. It, it speaks to us, scripture speaks to us, but it also has feet and it runs after us. God is, is not standing up somewhere waiting for us to find our way. He's running after us, pursuing us with mercy and grace. This is literally how the Apostle Paul came to know Jesus. He was found by Jesus who came after him. And, and in, uh, in a later part of, of the book of Acts, 
Paul describes this encounter that he has with Jesus, where, where Jesus says, he stops him and says, Paul, why are, actually it was Saul at the time, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And goads are, uh, you know, it's that stick that, that you would poke a, an ox with to get them to move. If you, that sounds cruel, but if you've ever been around livestock, uh, they're crueler. Uh, and, and they won't move when they're supposed to move, even if their, their safety is, at, is, uh, is um, on the line. And uh, so the idea of a goad, hey, move toward safety. Imagine, imagine a, a cow, imagine a, a steer, an ox, whatever, out in some place that's dangerous. Maybe floodwaters are coming and they don't know it. And the farmer's like, I want to save this ox. And they try to get, the, how do you get a stubborn ox to go up to the higher ground to somewhere safe? Before the floodwaters get too high, well, you got to get them there somewhere. And the, and Jesus has been goading, has been prodding Saul uh, to leave his stubborn ways and come to him for fulfillment, pursuing him with love. And he says, "Hey, I acted ignorantly in unbelief." The, the text says, "And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me, uh, that that um, that with the faith and love there in Christ Jesus." Uh, so Jesus did run after the outcast. He ran after the apostle Paul. Uh, so you know, what is your heart being prodded this morning? I'll just stop and say for a second: Is God prodding your heart this morning? Is there something uh, you need to change? Is there something for which you need to maybe repent that God's been trying to tell you? Uh, because here's the great thing: Whenever you repent of one thing, what God has to give you is so much better. It's always so much better. And so we need to be pursued because we often don't believe that we need Jesus. It's not uncommon for us to experience a discrepancy between how we see ourselves and how others see ourselves. Um, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow published a novel in, in 1849 called Kavanaugh that included this statement. He says, we judge ourselves by what we, what we feel capable of doing, while others judge us by what we have already done. And I think, how much more so is that true with, with God? Like, I judge myself by what I'm capable of doing and how good I'm, I'm pretty sure I would be on my best day. And, and yet the truth that anyone could see, if there were surveillance cameras around us all, over, all the time, uh, is what we do doesn't even match up with our standard for ourselves, right? And we need to be pursued because we don't often believe we need Jesus, Second, we need to be pursued because we do tend to run away, even when we know we need him. Uh, we tend to run away. And, uh, I, you know, this is, uh, wouldn't it be great if this happened every year, right? But uh, sometimes, and this happened to me once, uh, I did not want to file my taxes because I just knew, I was like, put my head in the sand. I was like, I'm going to owe a ton of money, and I do not want to know that number, and I, I just don't want to do it. I don't want to know that it exists. I just want to be in denial of it all. And finally, add it all up, I actually had a, a guy who, who does it, and, uh, and, and he, he's like, you actually get something back this year. And I was like, what? I could have used that two months ago. What was I doing? Like, why was I delaying so much? Like there was something in store for me. It wouldn't be great if that happened every year, right? It doesn't, does it? Uh, but it's kind of like that. Like we resist, we resist coming to Jesus. We resist... Um, coming uh, to him, but God, but Jesus, through the scripture, he pursues us. And, and it's actually when we receive that grace that we learn our lesson the best. That we learn our lesson the best. 
And he, he does pursue us. There's nowhere uh, we can hide from him. Psalm 139 has this beautiful poetic description. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Or the Hebrew word also means from your face. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. And this is so comforting. Your right hand shall hold me fast. So indeed, the darkness shall I say the darkness will cover me and the light about me will be night, but the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. Darkness is like light for you. And so not only does it pursue us, but he holds us. Not only does the, the, Jesus through the scripture speak to us, not only does he run after us, but he holds, lays hold of us. That the Bible is alive, it speaks to me, it has feet, it runs after me, it has hands, it lays hold of me. So third, it lays hold of me. Jesus seizes us lovingly. Uh, the best picture I have is, is of a child running out, about to run out into the street. There's a ball that's trickling out into the street and the child is running out after it because that ball is the most important thing to that child at that moment. And the parent lovingly comes and swoops and uh, grabs them and saves them from running out there. The, first, the child's first thought is, my ball, I want that thing. But the loving parent holds on to us when it's important, and won't let us go. And, and Paul talks about this as something that helps us to fight. That, that this is something about who God is, that he is the ultimate parent, the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the only one worthy of honor and glory forever and ever. And, uh, and he holds on to us and won't let us go. And this is so valuable as Paul is entrusting this charge to Timothy uh, so that Timothy, you know, he wants, he needs to, he's going to have to fight to hold on to these things to be true. He's going to have to fight to be reminded of how all these things are true. He's gonna, it's going to be a struggle in a world that tells him so many other things are valuable. It's going to be a struggle to hold tight to these truths. And it is... Uh, we need to be held and um, it is, we need to be reminded of God's love for us while we are. We need to be reminded of what he's done for us. And so this, this kind of wraps it, uh, kind of rounds it out here. That, that we can often even wander away and we need to be held. Uh, it can be good and actually a freeing thing to be held by God in his will. It sounds to some uh, like something, I don't want to do that. Uh, but there are ways we can be enslaved, if you will, to our own independence. There are ways that going our own way can turn out poorly for us. I forget, I don't know her name, I didn't write it down, um, but there's been a, there was a hiker a few days ago, week, last week sometime, who was, she was lost in, on a, she went on a hike alone somewhere in Hawaii. And uh, on this hike, got lost off the trail and I think was missing for two weeks or something like that. They, the police did their search, did a very thorough search, uh, could not find her. I think there was like a GoFundMe page or something. There's a private firm that went out and finally found her. But of course she didn't intend to get lost, or, but at the same time she, she knew that it was her own independence, her own desire, her own wanting to go alone that led to this problem. And it was actually great. I think yesterday it was on TV that she apologized publicly um, for being so reckless, 
because she recognized that she got lost because she was being reckless. Uh, We can become enslaved by our own independence. And we need to be reminded uh, of our freedom in in the strength of the Father, in being in his embrace. Uh, Coming up in a couple weeks, in a few weeks, is a day called Juneteenth. It's a celebration, particularly in the African-American community. Uh, because it's the day that marks the anniversary on June 19, 1865, when uh, the Emancipation Proclamation took effect for the enslaved persons in the state of Texas. The original Emancipation Proclamation was on September 22, 1862, and it was supposed to go into effect on January 1, 1863, but it didn't apply to those who were in Texas unless they escaped. So finally, two weeks after General Lee surrendered, the Emancipation Proclamation would take effect for those in Texas. And so this was delivered by uh, a general, or colonel, I think, general. Uh, He came with even a small army to Texas to deliver the message, but also to enforce it, to remind everyone by their strength and by their presence of the freedom of those who had been set free. In so many ways, Jesus comes with an army in love, a heavenly army to remind me, to remind you of his love for us. We need to be reminded that our sins are forgiven, that we are called to a standard of holiness much higher than we're settling for now, but but it's a life that is more fulfilling than how we're living now. Now, there's there's this emancipation and being aware of our freedom. There's also, here's another uh, illustration that even for those of us who believe the gospel and, and know that we're free, uh, that, that sometimes it can feel, uh, day in, day out, like even though we've been vindicated and declared sinless by the blood of Jesus, our day in, day out experience can, can be like we're going back into the courtroom every day trying to plead our case. And, and the best way to describe this is this is just an impulse that I have. And I even had this, to be honest, last Sunday when I was feeling ill, and I knew I shouldn't come because I'd get all you sick, and I knew I shouldn't leave my family because they're all sick, and like every, even though I was feeling sick, like me being there is better than me not being there. And, uh, and yet I felt so, something was going on inside me. And I realized that even me being here was something that, that I kind of pled, used to plead my case towards God, that I'm a good person. And it was in the absence of that, there's like, no, I really need to go. I really should go. I feel so bad about not going. And everything was covered, as far as I understand. Uh, everything went well, from what I hear. But there's all kinds of things that, that, that will nag us and say, well, if you don't do this, if you don't do that, you need, to, you need to make sure you have all this perfect in your life. You need to make sure that you do all these things. And if you, it's the anxiety that comes from it. If I don't do this, what kind of a person am I? What does God think of me? Well, the truth, the beautiful truth, is that the court is adjourned. The trial happened in the past. And it's like we're going back into an empty courtroom uh, wondering why there's no trial. Because the trial is over. That Jesus paid for our crimes. He paid for our sins. Court is adjourned. The verdict is in. It, it will not be appealed. Uh, it cannot be appealed. And, uh, and so we can live out of this. And then thirdly, there's emancipation, there is acquittal, and then finally there's acceptance. A friend of mine, a fellow church planner 
He himself uh, was adopted as a child, and he has adopted into his family uh, a child. And he uh, has, has said before that, that the orphan spirit is always looking to please or perform in order to feel accepted or to belong. And there's so many ways that we can want to do good things or, or be good people, ultimately so that either we feel God will accept us or a church might accept us or friends might accept us. But the gospel is a message of adoption and acceptance. Adoption of those outside God's family brought into his family, fully accepted and loved. And you can be walking with Jesus for years and still find yourself yearning for that acceptance, but it's ours. And through the gospel, we fight, we fight to drown out the other voices and to remember we are his. We are accepted. We are loved. We're in his home. There's nothing we have to do anymore to prove it. We need to be reminded of this. And so we want to be apply this finally to be a church that builds ourselves around these truths because these do transform our lives. And we want to speak this truth into a culture that does go after all kinds of other speculations and that broadly misunderstands the Scripture as well. And so as we fight, we do so not to pick a fight. We do so to struggle to remember and live out the truth of emancipation, of acquittal, of adoption, of acceptance. This truth that, that Jesus speaks to us, that the scripture, that he runs after us, that he lays hold of us. Jesus did fulfill uh, the law with his perfect life on our behalf. He, he knows what thirst is. He knows what it means uh, to be thirsty, and he experienced that, that we might thirst no more. He is the ultimate psalmist who constantly ran to the Father, but in the end was separated from God the Father on the cross. He was separated from his face. He was shackled and falsely accused that we might be set free. He was falsely accused and declared guilty that we might be declared innocent. He was disowned that we might be adopted and accepted. Because when Jesus hung on the cross, the Father turned his face away for a moment. Because our sin, he could not bear the sight of it. Jesus went to his death that we might live and love and fight to remember our emancipation, even from ourselves, our acquittal of our crimes and sins, our acceptance in the Father's heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that these things you would help us indeed to remember. We pray that you would bless us to love our neighbor and to know your love for us. That you would bless us to not see ourselves more highly than we ought, but to consider others more important than ourselves. Father, that you would indeed work through us uh, a, a, a deference towards you in all things. And we pray that you would do these things so that as cultural trends rise and fall, as things, as movements come and go, as, as all kinds of things may change, that we might know that we are secure in you who does not change. Uh, you are like a rock. Father, we ask that you be glorified through us and in us uh, and fill our hearts, Father, with joy and an awareness of your profound love for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.